Praise the Lord, everybody. I know he's here, and I know we've been worshiping him, but what do you say we do it again? He's so awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your beautiful presence. We love you, God. We love you. We love you. We love you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for being with us, God. Thank you for your kindness, God. Thank you for your beautiful presence. Oh, Jesus, we love you. Gracious, gracious, gracious God. Amen, 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 amen. We're going to let you be seated tonight. Um, well, this uh, high regard that your pastor has for me is a two-way street, let me tell you. And I mean that with all of my heart. Um, we have a lot of preachers come and uh, minister at Inland Lighthouse Church. And your pastor is one of the favorites. And I mean that. He, this... You have, uh, it was said of David um, in the 14th chapter of 1 Samuel that his, no, it wasn't either the 14th chapter. But it's long in there somewhere. At, uh, four times in this one chapter, it talks about how he behaved himself wisely, 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 wisely. And the Bible says his name was much set by. And uh, your pastors, the name of James Townley is much set by. It really is. And he's a great man. He really, seriously, is a, 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 a great, great man, great preacher of the gospel. We love him and we love his family, and we're so thankful for what God is doing here in Jennings. It's good to see Brother Hodge. It's always good to see him because he's about as tall as I am. It's always so nice to hug his neck. Praise God. Of course, his wife's a lot shorter than he is, but I think she likes hugging his neck too. Praise God. And we've known him. I knew him before he was as tall as me. Praise God. For a long time, and we love, love them very, very much. Good to see Brother Nolan and Brother... Rose, have we met before? Well, it's good to meet you. Now, he looked familiar, but you, you, it's good to meet you. God bless you. And uh, I want to say uh, appreciate Brother Jesse, wherever he's at. He met me at the door and helped me. And this good brother in the green shirt helped me. It wasn't you. <laughs> But, uh, and Sister Jean has helped. I've got some books back there, and um, um, I've, I've got three that I'm working on, but there's five that are done. And uh, there, there are various prices, like $13.95, $14.95, $15.95. But when I travel, I just make them $12.50. It saves time. But if you buy four or more, you get them for 10 each. There's also some, the Book of Davids are on MP3. Um, that means you can only play them in an MP3 player. One is, uh, 
I think nine hours, the other seven hours, but it's on a single CD, so you have to have an MP3 player, and most cars that have CD do that. But anyway, those are there on the way out. Uh, if you want me to sign those, I'll be happy to sign them. Um, I say this most everywhere I go, but it's just a neat thing. Me and McDonald's and uh, Walmart got a deal worked out. If you show them one of my books and it's signed by me, um, it doesn't matter if you're buying $10 worth of goods or $1,000 worth of goods. If you show them the book with my signature, pay your bill, you can leave, praise God. <laughs> so that, uh, that works out nice. <laughs> works out real nice. Took a long time to get that set up, but a lot of red tape, but we finally cut through it, praise God. And thank you for the beautiful, most comfortable room, the basket. I was bringing a lot of stuff into the room because I've got to sort through stuff because I'm getting on a plane um, Thursday. And I'm going in, and the lady said, uh, looks like you're going to be here for a while. I got the room for two nights. And I said, yeah, I'm moving in. No, but anyway, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your kindness. My, uh, uh, my wife, she, she, she's happy for what I do, but she don't want me moving nowhere, praise God. <laughs> so I'm, we're not going to stand tonight for the reading of the word because we're just going to kind of move into um, the arena. And um, so I've officially started right now. I've officially started. We are in, uh, I think, the greatest nation on the face of the planet. I've been to many, many other nations. Nowhere ever. I've seen beautiful places, but there's nowhere ever tempted me to want to live there. Uh, but we're in a very troubled nation, in case you hadn't noticed. Uh, but the whole world's struggling with this virus and all of the repercussions of it. So um, as for our nation, uh, the reason it, these things troubling, troubling and uh, painful and hurtful is because we love this nation. That's the deal. We love the nation. But we have to keep in mind, I think it's very important, and again, I love this country, but... I've already had coronavirus, so I can do that. <laughs> Amen. In fact, I was coming here one time, and you guys were eat up with it. So I went somewhere else, and I got it. Praise God. <laughs> so that's the way it works. Hallelujah. You, you run, but you can't hide. But uh, uh, so I love this nation. But we have to remember our citizenship is up there. And we're going to be up there a whole lot longer than we were down here. A whole lot longer. And I think sometimes it's just good to keep some things in perspective. And we know, we know we are closer to the coming of the Lord, obviously, than we have ever been. But um, I'm not a prophecy scholar. I can, um, except for recent 
bringing to you what I'm going to bring to you tonight. Probably at the most, um, I've preached on just sheer prophecy in almost 50 years of preaching, 10, maybe 15 times. And five, about a third of that was done the first three years I was in church. That's when I knew everything, praise God. Sometimes people come to me with a prophecy question or life question or scriptural question, and I, I tell them, I said, now, if you'd have caught me 40 years ago, I could have helped you. <laughs> but I'm out of my 20s now, so you're out of luck. But uh, my uh, daughter-in-law, Erica, is in the process of teaching a lady a Bible study. She is a Hindu from India, and she makes no bones about it. She said, I'll... I'll I'll do the Bible study, but she said, I'm Hindu. She impressed that three or four times. And then she said, but I'm going to tell you something. I'm Hindu, but I got a feeling Jesus is coming back. Wow. Wow. Now, this girl's brilliant and great, great young lady. So when I make the next statement, I'm not referring to her at all. But we're living in a day, the village idiot knows something's about to happen. And uh, so you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know that shoes are about to drop and things are happening. And uh, so we're going to take a look at some things here tonight. Now, I'm not a prophecy expert at all. I uh, hope this doesn't bother anybody. Uh, there are three main concepts of the second coming of the Lord. There's pre, mid, post. I vote for pre. That's, that's got my vote. Votes don't always mean what they used to mean, but I've, that's, that's got my vote. And, uh, but outside of that, I'm, 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 I've been a pan-trib guy for a long time. And that means that come trouble or woe, sorrow or no, Everything's going to pan out if you live for Jesus in spirit and in truth. You're going to be all right. You're going to be all right. Praise God. But uh, the other day I was driving in the, down the road and I was praying and I felt the presence of the Lord and I felt like he was speaking to me so strong that when I got done praying, I called my son Joel and I've been saying this to congregations and to most every preacher that I meet, I feel like he spoke to me. And uh, right now, right now in our world and in these days to come, the church needs two main things. And we need to pray for a special grace of God, a special grace to give us Great courage and great boldness. Sandwiched between great courage and great boldness, of course, is it spins on faith. But that's what we need. And uh, because this is the church's hour. This is not the hour to wring our hands. This is the hour to stretch our hands out. Because we've got the answer. Amen. So what I am about to bring to you um, has bounced around in my cranium 
in my heart and mind for many years. Various and sundry questions and ponderings, readings and rereadings, and, and in the last years, several things seem to have coalesced. Now, the book of Ezekiel is an exceedingly fascinating book, as are all the books of the Bible. And um, uh, we're not here to give an exegesis on, on what the book of Ezekiel is about. He was, he was carried away with the first captivity into Babylon, and he is ministering to those Jews that were carried away. And God would take him to the Spirit, sometimes to Jerusalem and different places. But in the 37th chapter, he takes this prophet Ezekiel to a, to a valley. And the impression is, from what we see and hear, it's a vast, huge valley, and it's full of bones, very dry. He no doubt recognizes that they are human bones only because of the skulls. Um, I think that would be the telltale thing that he wasn't looking at cattle. He was looking at human remains. And then the Lord asks him a question, and Ezekiel had been with the uh, Jews in captivity for some time, so he had pastored for a while, and you can tell he had pastored for a while by the answer he gave. He said, son of man, can these bones live? And if he'd have been in his 20s, he'd have gave him an answer. But he was older now and wiser, and he'd pastored for a while. He said, oh God, thou knowest. So the Lord said, prophesy. Prophesy to these bones. I don't know exactly what all he said. We get a few tidbits, but in the process of him opening his mouth in the presence of God, swooping in and out, he begins in the course of his prophecy to hear a great clattering. And as he watches, these bones start moving and shaking, and they start coming together. And little tiny bones are making feet, and they're hooked to ankle bones, and those are hooked to shin bones, and they, they hook to knees. Speaking of which, when you see me sitting up here, uh, I'm in good health. I have 64 beats a minute on my heart, the doctors tell me. Uh, my blood cholesterol is 140. My blood sugar is under 130. I, uh, my uh, blood pressure was, was uh, 118 over 89. But I got bad knees. So if you see me seated, seated, it's not that my heart's not with you. It's that my knees are not, praise God. <laughs> and so I'm up here and I'm shuffling and moving around. And I'm okay. And the Spirit's on me. And so that's what we do, praise God. But then comes the femur bone and the hip bones and spines are coming together. And here comes ribs. And then he sees... Keep prophesying, and then he sees sinews begin weaving and wrapping, and, and then he sees flesh coming, and muscles are coming, and then they're being covered with skin, and somewhere in that process, apparently, they're on their feet, their, their bodies, 
If their eyes, they are sightless. And here they stand. And he says, prophesy more. And prophesy to the four winds. Because I'm going to bring my people back. North, south, east, and west. From the corners of the earth back to the nation of Israel. And as he prophesies, life comes into these, this valley And he sees them now. It is a multitude of Jewish people. But of all of the analogies, of all of the ways he could have (coughs) described them, of everything, uh, he said they were a great army. A great army army. Now you may not think of Israel, when you think of Israel you think of that little sliver of land on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean where the Jews live. But if you were one of their neighbors you'd think they're a great army. It has been speculated by some, I don't agree, uh, but the God factor makes all the difference in the world as we shall see, that they're the most powerful, fourth most powerful nation militarily in the world. The United States, even Russia said there's only one superpower now. That's the United States. But it's one thing to have all the stuff to do it, and it's another thing to do something with it. And uh, second, of course, or third, is between Russia and China. Some say that Israel is the next. Well, you know, you can't just write off France that easy and Great Britain that easy. But they are definitely, without question, they are in the top ten. Just to give you a little point of that, in 2016, uh, Israel patented over 8,000 inventions. 8,000 patents were successfully um, submitted and approved across the world for Israel, and of those 8,000 patents, the vast majority, over 90%, were military patents. So they do mean business. And if you, if you want to put that in perspective, all of the Muslim nations on earth, and that goes all the way from Indonesia, of course, to the Middle East, etc., um, all nations that are ruled by Muslim governments together had about 500 patents. Iran had 50. But Israel had 8,000. When it comes to technology, uh, the United States on the, on the, US, on the NASDAQ, the, the, the largest nation on earth for NASDAQ operations and companies is the United States. Second in the world is Israel. Israel has more companies in NASDAQ than all of Europe put together. So they are technologically sharp and shrewd, and they mean business. And God said, Ezekiel, through Ezekiel, he saw a great army. And so that's what happens in chapter 37. And the, the book of Ezekiel, all of a sudden, it makes a sharp turn when it hits chapter 37.
and he describes them as an army. Then you get to chapter 38. Now, if you have your Bibles open by any chance, you might want to follow along. I'm going to be, I'm certainly not going to read every word, but I do want us to get the picture. Now it's chapter 38 of the book of Ezekiel. And it says, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth, and all thy, thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts, and that's quite a statement, all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Now, picture, this is taking place uh, 2,500 years ago. If he was seeing tanks and uh, jeeps and things of that nature, how would he describe that? I, 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 I saw these big dark green things. They seem to be moving pretty quick. Well, God, all through scripture, he will speak anthropomorphically so that we can get the picture. I don't know that he's literally talking about actual horses, but he's talking about warfare. All sorts of armor, meaning stuff that he just said, I don't know what all that stuff was. It was just all sorts of armor. Then in verse 5, in names specifically, <coughs> excuse me, again, I've been coughing for 40 years. You don't have to worry about that. In, in verse 5, he names Persia, which is Iran, Ethiopia, Libya, names we are very familiar with that are alive and fairly well. With them, that is coming with Gog, Magog, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and his bands, the house of Togorma, in the north quarters and all his bands and many people with thee. Now, just who are all this, and um, all we can deal with is history, and, and um, uh, God knows. Let me, let me tell you this. The greatest teacher and explainer of prophecy is time. Time makes it all plain. I'm not a prophecy expert. I do a lot better with the book of Acts than I do Revelation. Okay. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm just a little sometimes dubious of, of, of self-proclaimed absolute experts. I at least like someone to say I'm not sure, but it could be. Thank you. So uh, there's a lot of that tonight. I'm not sure about all this, but it could be. But I think we're in the ballpark. So most scholarship identifies Magog as being associated with the ancient peoples known as the Scythians, which you see found in the book of Acts when they were speaking in other tongues. They named the Scythians. So the ancient historian Joseph Flavius, better known, much better known as Josephus, 
he identifies in his book, Wars of the Jewish People, Magog as Magog, a man, founded the Magogians, thus named after him, but who were by the Greeks called Scythians. And the name Scythian covers a number of nomadic tribes from the Russian steppes in a fertile area of the Ukraine, north of the Black Sea. Also of uh, modern, more modern definitions of Magog, ancient Central Asia, ancient Scythians. This includes Islamic southern republics of the former Soviet Union that have a population of over 60 million Muslims. This ancient ter territory could also include modern Afghanistan. Meshach is believed to be Turkey, ancient Mushkai, Cilicia, Cappadocia, Tubal, again, it's a portion of Turkey just south of uh, Russia and Iran. And um, in 1935, um, Persia, the name was changed to Iran. And then Ethiopia is Ethiopia and a little bit beyond. Uh, Gomer is another portion of Turkey. If you remember in the book of Acts, when Paul names about these areas he's going to, it's all Asia Minor, but it's today Turkey. But they were different uh, regions and countries in those days. Beth Togorma, again, is another portion of Turkey between uh, Karkamesh and Haran. And then it speaks of other many peoples with you. So these are very probably other is what we call today Islamic nations, possibly Iraq, possibly Syria, Jordan. We don't know. We don't know. It's interesting that uh, President Trump recently signed with Bahrain, Sudan, and the United Arab Emirates peace treaties. They call it the Abrahamic uh, Peace Accords. And so these areas are not specifically mentioned here. So who knows? But verse 7, be thou prepared. He's talking to Gog and Magog. And prepare for thyself. Thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. So Gog and Magog has these other nations with him, and, and Gog and Magog, he is the guard. He's the big dog in the pack, which is the role that Russia has wanted to play in the Middle East for a long, long time. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about it, from, but from, uh, from when they were declared to be a nation, there was a reason Russia voted with, or the Soviet Union voted with the United States to recognize both the partitioning of the land and then that Israel could be a nation. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. Why would Russia do that? We'll get into that. And uh, so now the coming... And God's got a hook in their jaws, and he is a guard unto these other nations. Verse 8, after many days, thou shalt be visited. Now, Gog and Magog is going to be visited after many days. The, one of the part of the promise God gave to Abraham was, I'm going to bless them that bless you, and I'm going to curse them that curse you. Russia, under the czars, were some of the greatest 
persecutors of the Jews in all of that part of the world. The pogroms of Kiev were murderous. The burnings, the lootings, the rapes, the killings were atrocious. And that was taking place in the late 1800s, which is why Jews in the late 1800s from Russia began escaping and getting there. And then the Russian Ukraine, the army didn't get better. They got worse. So more and more Jews were coming. But they were also coming with some thinking about Marxism or socialism. Now, you will read, there's some books they put out there that that the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, uh, many people portray that as nothing but a Jewish communist revolution. And to this day, there's people that believe that. There's a reason so many Jews were involved in that revolution. They had been so persecuted by the Tsar and his armies, they felt absolutely, totally hopeless there was nowhere to turn, nobody they could reach out to. So when the teachings of Karl Marx begin to sweep through and they're passing his materials, the reason the most persecuted peoples in Russia were the Jews, the reason so many of them were embracing Karl Marx's ideas is because this may be our only way out. Maybe we can overthrow this regime. That's why so many Jews were swept into it. Okay? Well, when these Jews began to, especially after World War I, after the revolution, when they began to go to Israel, the Russian Jews, if you remember... Anyway, the kibbutz movements, the very first one ever formed in Israel. I, I, I had a man, he was a tour guide back 35 years ago, and he was born on that first Russian kibbutz. And uh, it was totally communistic. The kibbutz system was. Everybody shared everything. The state raised the kids. I mean, the, the kibbutz, they raised the kids. They all lived in a little house together. And parents would come, pat them on the head, and go work in the fields. And they shared everything. They, they got that from Karl Marx. Okay? And, and, and so they started the kibbutz movements. And they're going along. And uh, that's one reason Russia, the Soviet Union, voted for the partition and voted, the United States went first. Harry Truman cast the first vote. When, when May 14, 1948, when David Ben-Gurion declared Israel is a nation once again, the first nation was America. And the George C. Marshall was the Secretary of State. He was the most popular man in the world because of the Marshall Plan. And he told Truman, he said, if you vote, if we vote, the State Department did not want Israel to be a nation. He said, I will resign, which had been crippling to the Truman administration. You're not going to find this in many history books, but if you go to the Truman Library, you'll get it. And he told Marshall, he said, we're not voting for oil. We're voting for righteousness. These people deserve a nation. 
So America voted first, Israel as a nation. The Soviet Union voted second. We're for it. It shocked everybody, especially Israel. Duh. You know why they did it? They thought Israel was going to be a socialist country because so many of the Jews that came out of there were socialists. They never dreamed they would set up a democratic government, and they've been a democratic government to this day. And it's like the Russians said, why did we vote for you people? It was a God thing, all of it. Lincoln said the Almighty has his own purposes. So here we go. Now Russia's been trying to meddle in the Middle East all these days. So again, after, in verse 8, after many days shalt thou be visited. I believe Gog and Magog, Russia, is going to be visited because he blesses those that bless and he curses those that curse. And there will be a payday for Israel. Part of the reason America has been blessed is because we have been Israel's friend. Sometimes willingly, sometimes not so willingly. But we have been their friend. And God blesses. And now the winds are changing. And we're going to see what takes place. So thou shalt be visited. In the latter days, thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people. And notice this. You will come against the mountains of Israel. Everybody say mountains. Which have always been waste. Now I'm going to pick up the pace here. But is brought forth out of all nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. And thou shalt ascend and come like a storm, and shall be like a cloud to cover the land. Thou and all thy bands... And many people with thee. But that's not like Zechariah and Revelation where it's all nations. This is just many people. Verse 10, thus saith the Lord God, it shall also come to pass. At that same time shall things come into thy mind and thou shalt think an evil thought. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are rest, that dwell safely. All of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates in all of the, the cities Throughout Israel, they don't have any walls, etc. Why are they coming? And think of the nations, the armies, the people that are coming with him. Ethiopia, Libya, the average soldier in Iran, the Russians, they're coming down there for booty. They they want they want cattle. They want goodies. They don't have that. They're not wealthy people. I went through the, the, the inner land of, of uh, Russia uh, on a train from St. Petersburg to Moscow. Uh, I was fortunate. I could ride it by myself. And uh, nobody interrupt me. And I'm going through villages that and tiny little houses from here to that wall square. And I'm thinking these people are living like they lived for thousands of years. The big cities are different, but you get out through the hinterlands. They're just as poor as they've always been. So in verse 14, they're going to go to the land of, one, of unwalled villages. Verse 12, to take a spoil, to take a prey, 
to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. Verse 15, and thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts. This battle, this armies are coming from the north. In the book of Revelation, they're coming from the east. Here they're coming from the north. Thou and many people with thee. All of them riding upon horses, a great company, a great and a mighty army. And thou shalt come up against my people in Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days. And I will bring thee against my land. This is why. That the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. And it shall come to pass at the same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. Verse 21, I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains. Mountains, saith the Lord, every man's sword shall be against his brother. Eventually, apparently they're going to get into a discomfitted fight and war against each other. Verse 23, and I will magnify myself and sanctify myself and be known in the eyes of many nations and they shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 39. Therefore thou, son of man, prophesy against Gog. Say, thus saith the Lord, behold, I'm against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn thee back, but leave the sixth part of thee. What he's saying is, when your army's done, I'll take five out of six of them. That's what I call a pretty big defeat. I will cause thee to come upon up from the north parts and will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands and the people that is with thee. And I'll give thee to the ravenous birds of every sorts and the beast to be devoured. Now, verse 7. So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. Now, brothers and sisters, there's a lot of atheism in Israel. Not as much as there used to be. There's an upswing in religious thought in Israel towards Judaism, Talmudism, things of that nature. But after World War II, when the Jews begin coming back in mass because of what Hitler did in Europe. A, a, they say six million Jews. There are Jewish scholars that say no, it's more like eight or nine million. They know this. When he got done, one out of three Jews in the world was dead. Poland, that had the largest Jewish population at the beginning of World War II, he killed nine out of ten Jews in Poland. And one of the reasons the Jews fled back, many fled to America, but many fled to Israel. Many of them were atheists. And the reason they were atheists was because of the Holocaust. Well, if we're God's people, where was he? 
where's this great protective God? And we were slaughtered like dogs. And they came back. Well, the children and grandchildren of those people are the ones that are starting to think more about religion. I'm going to give you a subtitle. I'm talking about the Gog-Magog War, and we're going to get to the temple. But how about this subtitle? Think about this battle, this war, when the God of the Holocaust shows up. And he does show up. When this God shows up, all the nations say, whoa, only God could have done that. And Israel will know, whoa, only God saved our bacon. We can't eat it, but God saved it. Hallelujah. <laughs> now, here's the deal. The world looks at Israel. You understand that, that, that America has so uh, defended the Jews so often that the Arab world, let's, let's go back to uh, uh, the, the nation that helped Israel militarily with, with weaponry was Czechoslovakia. Did you know that during the War of Liberation in 48, they actually got planes out of Czechoslovakia that had been made for the German army and they had swastikas on them and the Jews were flying them to save their bacon. Amen. But America helped some. They voted for them. And, but, they, but they won. They were... By landmass, it was 5,000 to one against Israel. By soldiery, it was over, well over 100 soldiers to one against them. Militarily, it was like 250 weapons to one against Israel in the 48 war. But they pulled it off. When, when Ben-Gurion declared it on May 14, 1948, they had celebrations all over the land. Ben-Gurion refused to go to any celebrations. Menachem Begin, who hated Ben-Gurion, and Ben-Gurion hated him, he refused to go any celebrations. And the reason was, they said, this time tomorrow, those people out there shouting and dancing, many of them will be dead. But it's the price we pay for a nation. But they won. We want to talk about the 56 campaign when Israel was posed to take Cairo the first time. And the United Nations called him back, especially America. And then in the 67 war, the 67 war where the six day war, I came to God in 1972. So the war had been over for five years. When I first came to God, there was a lot of talk about the Six-Day War, and I heard all kinds of stories. Well, when I began pastoring in Rialto, I was there a few years, and there was a man in our church. He said, there's somebody you've got to meet, and he wants to meet you. So I went over to San Bernardino, and I met a man. He's passed on now. He was in his, he was in his uh, about 80, and uh, they called him the old rabbi. He was Jewish, but he was Messianic. He did believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but his, 
but he was, he was raised Jewish, everything else. When he heard, when I sat down and talked to him and let him know, Shema Yo Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echud, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I said, we believe it just like Moses. I had his attention totally. And when I explained this invisible God, this bloodless God, this deathless God, this God who cannot, it tempts no man and cannot be tempted. How this God so loved this world, this invisible God, who in Isaiah 43 said, I, even I am Jehovah, beside me there is no Savior. Look unto me and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. I said, there's one thing God doesn't know, it's another God. Is there, yea, is there another God? I know not any. And he's like, yeah, yeah. I said, well, this invisible God took on flesh through Mary. And he was in the world, and the world was made by him. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And now in that body, he who tempts no man and cannot be tempted was now in all points tempted, like as you and I, yet without sin. This eternal God who cannot die figured out a way he could taste death for every man. And this God who has no flesh and blood figured out a way that the only innocent blood that ever pumped through a human heart would be shed for all of us. And I said, this God, amen. The man died. The spirit re-entered him, glorified him, and there's one on the throne. He loved it. And he came to our church three times. And when he felt the presence and when he saw the worship, and he, and, he, he, and he saw the modesty, he loved it. But he married a woman that was 35 years younger than him. And she looked around, and she wasn't nearly as religious as he was. And so after the third visit, she put her finger in his nose and let him out. But in one of our conversations, he was talking about the years he lived. I said, wait, 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 wait. I said, so you were there during the 67 war? He said, oh, absolutely. I said, all right. I've been looking for you a long time. I said, when I first came in, I'd hear these stories. I would hear stories that Israeli pilots, there were some Israeli pilots that by themselves would take down over 30 opposing Air, uh, jets and they would land and they would say we were not alone there were angels up there and they were on our side now that's one thing but then if, if an Egyptian they hardly ever got off the ground but a few did some Jordanians finally got into it and Israel kept saying don't do it because Egypt they were wiped out but they were saying we are winning the war and they were lying through their teeth. They didn't want to admit to the world they were getting skunked. So, 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 and then Syria jumped in because they, they wanted some of the booty. And they jumped in and they started getting skunked. But they said, we are winning. And Jordan said, we're going to be left out. And, and they kept saying, don't. But Israel couldn't. They didn't announce to the world how bad they were beating him because they knew the second the United Nations knew they were winning, they'd stop everything. That's a fact. So they just kept, and, and they told 
who's saying, don't get in. He got in and he found out neither Egypt or Syria was winning and quickly he wouldn't either. And when the world found it all out and they were poised to take Damascus, the United Nations called it to a halt. But Israel had taken the Golan Heights. They had taken the old city. But some of those pilots from the other nations that, that lived to tell about it, and they could actually land their planes, some of them would say, there were beings up there, and they were not on our side. They were helping the Israelis. So I asked him, I said, is that true? He said, absolutely. He said, Israel. He said, Israel's just a big old family. He said, everybody, everybody, you know, they have a compulsory service. So every family has somebody. They even had a minuscule navy in those days. If you were in the navy or the air force or the infantry or in the tank course, everybody that came back had stories. We were helped. I read one book. An Israeli general said, every mistake we made worked to our good. And every decision the enemy made worked to their bad. And O.C. Marler said, Larry said, I've got a book written by a Muslim general that said it's time to tell the story. And his version of, he said, in that war, he was in the tank corps. He said, we'd be cutting through the, and all of a sudden over a hill, we'd make everybody shut down the engines and listen. He said it sounded like 10,000 tanks were going to come over that hill. And we realized we're sunk. And so they'd hightail it out of there. And they keep looking back. And no tanks ever showed up. Same thing with Air Force. They said it sounded like, it sounded like here came the whole United States Air Force coming after us. And then when we'd skedaddle, there was nobody there. Like the four lepers, that the sound was magnified. And they said they've hired. So that's what happened. But what America did help. Lyndon Johnson, we were, we, were, we were in the Vietnam War at that time, and he was loath to help, especially after the Israelis blew up the USS Pueblo, shot it to pieces, and killed a lot of Americans. And they said, we're sorry, we're sorry, it was a mistake. Later, some of the people involved said, it was a spy ship, and it was helping the Syrians. That's why we blew it up. Be that as it may, who knows. But in the 73 Yom Kippur War, they were caught off guard. Golda Meir listened to the wrong voices. They attacked on the, on the Day of Atonement. Israel wasn't ready. America helped, finally Johnson helped, in the 67 war. And Kissinger and Nixon were not helping. They were dragging their feet. Kissinger was worse than Nixon by far. And when Nixon got the reports from the high flying satellite, I mean the aircraft, spy, spy aircraft, and they said, Israel, has opened their missile silos because they've had atop, atomic weapons for a long time. And when they told Nixon 
their backs to the wall, they've opened up the missile silos. That's when Nixon said, get that stuff over there fast. And within 24 hours, America was pouring stuff in. Why am I telling all that? Because the world said, we had them, but the U.S. spared them and saved them. We had them in 73. And it's really not true. God helped them. And, and, but still, that's the stigma. And all that I've read to you here in the Gog-Magog War, listen closely. They're in it by themselves. America, our nation, is not on the scene. Why? Who knows? Maybe they've spent so much money and inflation so high, they're messed up. Maybe there's a regime, a regime in power that says, that's your problem. But whatever, when they get into this war, America does not help them. That's why when Israel wins the war against Gog, Magog, Persia, Iran, Libya, Ethiopia, and there's more mosques being built in Ethiopia right now than anywhere else on earth. And whatever other nations are involved, when Israel defeats them, and the Bible said they are seven months burying the dead. And when that happens, the whole world will say, only God could have helped them. Nobody's saying the U.S. It astonishes the heathens. Whoa. And Israel says, the God of the Holocaust finally showed up. Now think with me when that happens. Think with me. That's chapter 37, 38, and 39. We know that Israel wants to build a temple. I became friends with uh, I, I, be, uh, I, I, I mean, I was, I was good friends with a rabbi from Santa Maria, California when I was pastoring up there. I really, I really liked him. He liked me. I sat with him two to five hours every Tuesday afternoon that I was in town for four years. And uh, we talked about everything, including the Messiah. And there were days I'd be talking about this invisible God becoming, and the Spirit of God would come in there so thick you could cut it. But I had him come to our church one time and speak to us. I didn't let him in the pulpit or on the platform. I said, a lectern here. And I said, I want you to talk to our church about monotheism, one God. I said, but we would like to have a Q&A, question and answer period. He said, sure, that'd be fine. So I was sitting with this young man sitting. I think I scared you during prayer meeting. But anyway, <laughs> and, and, and I told the church, I said, let me handle the Messiah questions. Ask him anything you want, but I will take care of the Messiah questions. So when it came time, we'd been going question and answer. Finally, 
I said, now, Rabbi Rach, do you believe the Messiah has come? No, sir. Do you believe the Messiah is coming? Absolutely. I said, what are you looking for? Are you looking for God manifest in the flesh? Are you looking for a redeemer? Are you looking for a healer? Are you looking for a teacher? Are you looking for a political being? He never hesitated. He said, our Messiah will be political. Okay. A few years later, there was a man that went through the country, Heim Richmond. He was working with a man up in Kenton. They were trying to produce the red heifer. They do have it now. I've seen pictures of the four perfect red heifers that Israel now has. They were supposed to have um, offered up one as a sacrifice in April of 2020. Uh, but for some reason, they didn't. But he came, and he was, he was going around the nation. He was trying to raise money, this and that. And somebody called me and said, would you like to have him come? I said, sure. So I had a lectern. Well, I could not get Rabbi Rach to come because he was death on Israel building a temple. He said, I hope they never build a temple. And I said, why? He said, because it will be a bloodbath in Jerusalem. They try to build a temple anywhere in Jerusalem, but especially on the mount. said, it'll be a bloodbath. All those Arab nations will. He said, it'll be hideous. So he wouldn't even come hear him. But his wife came. Little thin lady, about 80, about this tall, named Addie, but she was tough as nails. So same thing, I asked the question about the Messiah. He gave me the exact same answers. So in the process, and he, he, today he is over the Temple Institute. Then he was just fundraising. Now he is over the Temple Institute, the, the people to build the temple in Jerusalem. And I asked him back then, this is back in 94, 95. I said, okay, so you're going to build the temple? He said, yes. I said, do you have everything you need to build the temple? He said, we have everything but the temple. I said, so you have the curtain, you got the candlesticks, table of incense. He said, we got it all. I said, do you have the Ark of the Covenant? He said, yes. I said, have you seen it? No. But I have friends that I would die for and they would die for me and for this cause and they swear to me they have it. I said, okay. So he, and this, and if you look his name up, Heimrichman, this is his slogan. Build the temple and Messiah will come. We want Messiah to come. Build the temple. Messiah will come. And they're raising money. Okay? So he's doing this. And Addie, she doesn't raise her hand. She stands up. She doesn't call him Rabbi Richmond. She said, okay, Mr. Richmond. Very disrespectful. But she was tough. And this is what she said. You and your cohorts. She really was mad. Are determined you're going to build a temple in Jerusalem. 
And you know as well as I do, the day you turn your first spade of earth, you're going to fill Jerusalem with blood from one end to the other. I will never forget this moment. I asked my son Joel about it. Okay, he was 18, 19-ish. He said, Dad, I'll never forget that moment as long as I live. He stepped out from behind the lectern. He stepped toward the front pew. He looked at her and he said, Ma'am, if there's any blood shed in Jerusalem, I'm going to look at you, sis, not to scare you, but just to, if there's any blood shed in Jerusalem, that's not my problem. He said, blood shed over that temple is God's problem. My problem is to build Ezekiel's temple, and we're going to build it. It was bone chilling. He meant it. I would get four times a year, sometimes three, newsletters from him. I'd pay him $25 a year to get these newsletters. The last one I ever got from him was after Yitzhak Rabin, the prime minister, had given away some of the, some of the land to the Palestinians. He was so mad. I'm reading his paper, and I'm thinking, I'm, this is ye, he was doing everything but calling for Yitzhak Rabin's assassination. One month later, he was assassinated. Okay? That's the last newsletter I got, too. So, this is something about all this bloodshed. You know, God wouldn't let David build the temple. I'm closer to being done than you think. He would not let David build the temple. He said, you've shed too much blood. I don't want it associated. And so this temple of Ezekiel, if it's going to fill Jerusalem with blood from one end to the other, have mercy. Listen to me, my personal opinion, based on Scripture. I don't think there's going to be one single drop of blood shed anywhere in Jerusalem over that temple. And I'm going to tell you why. 37, a great army. 38, I'm putting a hook in your jaw. You're coming down from the north parts, Gog and Magog. You who persecuted my people all these decades and centuries. Well, if you're fixing to get your comeuppance, and you're going to be a guard to these people. And they ain't been exactly treating my people very good either. And they're going to come, and America's not going to help them. They're going to be all by themselves. And Israel's going to have their back to the wall and a knife to their throat. But somehow, someway, before it's over... Amen. Five out of six, if it's Russians, they're dead. The armies are scattered. They're disconfitted. They're killing each other. They're seven months burying the dead. You let Israel have a victory like that, they'll build that temple anywhere they want. You let them win a victory like that. And think about Jews in America and Europe and all over the world, how much money they'll pour into Israel to build the temple to the God that saved their beef stew. Amen. <laughs> you say, well, how do you know it's going to be that way? What does chapter 40 talk about? The temple. What's 41 talk about? The temple. 42, 43, 44, 45, 46. Till the end of the book, it's nothing but temple, 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 temple. 
after the Gog-Magog war, they build the temple. Now, in 2020 of April, there was a, there's three main rabbis. Uh, I'd like a musician to come, please. Just so you give them hope. I will say this, Zechariah 14, it's all nations. All nations come to Israel to battle. In the battle in the valley of Jezreel, Armageddon, Megiddo. The battle of Armageddon is not in the mountains. It's in the valley. Okay? Can you even a bit longer? I've preached out of 2 Kings 20, 1 Kings 20 for years and years and years. Here's the short version. Ahab and Jezebel, kings, they're rotten to the core. Ben-Hadad comes with 32 kings with him and says, everything you own is mine, we're going to fight. And the bottom line, a prophet comes to Ahab said, no, you're going to fight, you're going to lead the battle. They go out there and they whoop those 32 kings bad. Ahab and Jezebel should have had their heads cut off. And God saved them. Well, I mean, as far as the battle. And then the prophet that said he was going to win goes to him and says, you better take heed how you walk because they're coming back. And a few years later, here they come. They have, meanwhile, listen closely, they talked to Ben-Hadad and said, the reason we lost is their God is a God of the mountains. If we fight in the valley, we'll win. Why is that story even there? All these things are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. Ahab and Jezebel were not angels, and neither is the government of Israel right now. But they win this battle in the mountains. And then comes a 200 million man plus army from the east. America wasn't there to help them. The next great quote-unquote superpower wanting to throw their weight around, Russia is whammied. Brothers and sisters, who's left? China. And here comes China and all nations with them. From the east, they're fighting Jerusalem, they're in the valley of Megiddo. That battle is so bloody, the blood gets four foot deep. And here comes Jesus Christ. Let's all stand with us, with him. You say, when are we getting out of here? I don't know. I vote for tomorrow. That's his, that's his business. But we're coming back, amen, for that battle. And we're going to be with him. Brothers and sisters, you say, where are you preaching this? We are close to the end. And there's a reason America has its troubles. One thing, Israel's got to be alone. Another thing, and when I make this statement, I'm not trying to cause pain. And I know it's painful. You can't talk about it, not cause pain. So in a congregation this size, you can't. You cannot kill 65 million innocent babies and not pay the piper somewhere. America's in trouble with God. 
And it's ceasing to be a friend of Israel. But I'm closing with this. Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky. Little background music. Just so they'll know I'm really serious. He's one of three Israel's top rabbis. In April, he said this. He's got a huge following. This has blown Israel's mind. He said, I am in direct contact with the Messiah now. Well, he's either praying to Jesus or he's listening to the Antichrist or some deluded soul. But this is the next thing he said. The Gog Magog battle is coming very quickly to Israel. I don't know if it is or not, but you look at everything that's happening. Now, if you're here tonight and you don't have the Holy Ghost, you're in the right place at the right time. This is not a good time to not be living for Jesus. Amen. If, if you haven't taken on the name of Jesus in the waters of baptism coupled with a good, solid repentance, this is not a good time. No, no. This is a wonderful time to do that. Hallelujah. And I could close this with an altar call, and if you need to do those things, please do so. But I'm going to tell you what I think we really need to do. We're so close. I don't like a lot of stuff that's happening, but God knows all about it. The most important thing on earth to God is His church and Israel. That's it. That's it. And our citizenship is above. Honey, he said, when you see this stuff begin to come to pass, don't wring your hands. Lift up your heads. Stretch out your hands to him and to the lost. So maybe you'd like those that can. I know, I know you may have to do it right where you're at. But if there is somebody that wants to do more for God in these last days, than they've ever done. Next time you're on the job and somebody's wringing their hands, you got something to tell them. Amen. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. You need to come to our church. You need to feel something. You need to find hope. There's hope in this world. Get in the church. He's going to get it out of here. You need to be part of it. And if you'd like to step down, and just lift your hands and start talking to Jesus, thanking Him, committing even more while these dear people play and sing. Come on, sir. Come on, ma'am. Hallelujah. You can do it where you're at. But we're close to the end. We're close to the end. He's coming. We're watching it take place all around us. Brothers and sisters, get ready. Amen. It's the hour of the church. Amen. God's going to give revival. We're going to reach and go mightily forward. I pray we'll oh, that's it. That's it, young man. That's it, young lady. Oh, God, I'm going to teach Bible studies. I'm going to talk to my neighbors. God, you're going to help me. While we're praying, we're going to pray this. 
Jesus, let people start asking me. Let people say, hey, what do you think about all this? And God, let me talk to them. Let me let them know Jesus is coming and it's time to get ready. Come on. Oh, that's it. Come on. That's it. Come on. 